Good Gab, sponsored by Skillskin, a nonprofit organization empowering individuals with disabilities through employment. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. I It's my extreme pleasure to have Bob Lutz here, longtime Spokane resident, a heart for service, and I think we're going to learn a lot today. Thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Tell us what's happening in your world. <laughs> well, you know, I'm still doing public health. So I, where I'm finding myself right now, Steve, is I, I work for the Department of Health, and so still very much involved in, if you will, sort of the, um, I won't, don't want to say the pandemic is winding down, but certainly the intensity of the response is a far cry from what it was six months ago, sure. a year ago. So as I said, from that standpoint, that's looking good. Um, and then I'm also, one day a week, I work for Chaz and I do what's called street medicine. What's that? And so yeah, so street medicine, it is medicine on the street, you know, truly. It, um, I don't need to tell you. We all know that there's a homelessness issue here in Spokane. It's not just unique to Spokane. We're seeing it nationwide. Right. And a lot of times the individuals who find themselves living unsheltered, houseless, however you want to phrase it, have had negative experiences with the healthcare system and they have healthcare issues. Fair. So the reality is that, you know, if they're not going to come to a healthcare setting, the healthcare setting needs to come to them. And so what we attempt to do, and it's not just me, there's two other, one physician, a physician assistant, a couple of MAs, a nurse, also a so work of social workers who go out and we bring healthcare to them. When did this initiative start? Yeah, so Chaz had a lot of foresight in this, Steve, and so uh, probably a little bit more than a year ago, there had been some conversations for a while uh, a couple years ago, I had the chance of meeting some of the people and, and players. And then with time and persistence, it came together. And so, as I said, there's another physician, Dr. Luis Manriquez, who works at WSU. There's a great PA named uh, TJ Burns. And we all now work for Chaz. And then cool. again, we've got, you know, uh, some great medical assistants who really can connect with people. And... These individuals, you know, who find themselves living houseless, uh, unsheltered, what have you, oftentimes have had a lot of trauma and are still existing in a traumatic state. And it's a rapport that you need to establish with them. And I think that's one of the things that I've really been appreciative of. Uh, they're more than willing and more than able to open up, but they need to trust. Yeah, no, as, as you said, Steve, it takes time. And that's yeah. where, again, when they see the same people and they same people they've had a good positive experience with and or they have friends and contacts who have had those positive experiences, then that trust is there. But yeah, just, the word gets out, right? Yeah, but it's a slow process. Mm -hmm. It's a slow process, but the need is incredibly is incredible. And the stories people share with you again, you know, as I've shared, as I've stated, people don't wake up one day and say, you know what, I want to live on the street. No, I no, they do not. I want to live on the street and be looked upon disparagingly by people who drive by and get stuff thrown at me. And uh, people think that I commit crimes. And, you know, the data demonstrate that, unfortunately, if you are living homeless, 
you have a greater likelihood of having crime committed against you right. than you committing crime. But that's not the that's not the narrative. No, that's not what everyone's hearing. No, and so that's unfortunate. But again, I think that the more people who hear the stories, and the stories are really heartfelt. I mean, again, I it's it's you know you go home at the end of the day, and you know there but by the grace of God go all of we, and truly, um, for many for many of our members in the community, you know they're one paycheck away from potentially losing the roof over their heads, and then what happens? And as we know, we don't have enough housing. Right. We don't have you know housing, be it homes, be it apartments, be it what have you, to house the number of people who are out there. And so again, it's a really, it's a challenging situation. So that's one portion of my life, which again, I think it's public health. It is public health. It's public health on the ground. Yeah, I'd say that's like guerrilla public health. Well, yeah, you're I mean, on the street. Yeah, but but yeah, but it's as I said. I think it's just it it gives it gives me a lot of meaning. But it also, as I said, makes much of sort of the the existential nature of public health, which is oftentimes you know we public health is there for the public's health, and it is behind the scenes. I think people prior to the pandemic equated it with care for the underserved sure, and vaccinations and regulations. So, you know, you would not be able to go to a restaurant and feel comfortable knowing that this restaurant had never been inspected. And uh, that's the kind of stuff that public health does. Now public health is seen for its great work during the pandemic. For me, the work on the street is truly grounding public health in the reality of the public's health because I can read about it, I can talk about it, but it's the lived experience right. of talking with people who are there, who are dealing with public health issues that for me grounds my sort of theoretical, at times sort of distant work in public health. So where did this drive come from in you that um, you wanted to be a part of this world? Just medicine's huge, right? It's, there's yeah, a wide breath. That that's an interesting, yeah, it's a great question, Steve. I mean, it's interesting. You know, I, I can look back and I was, my mother was a nurse and she said, Bobby, you're going to be a doctor. I said, I'm going to be a doctor. And I grew up wanting to be a doctor. And then I got to medical school and it's like, cool. Do I really want to be a doctor? And yeah, what was that experience like that? Talk about existential angst. Hmm. You know, I've now spent, you know, four years of college and doing all, everything directed towards being a physician. And what I found was that the interactions with human beings is, again, it's priceless. I mean, there is a reality of being a physician or nurse practitioner, physician assistant that nobody else can experience because there's very few roles or very few vocations where somebody is willing to share her or his life's experiences with you, you know, in times of being very vulnerable. And so for me, that's an honor to be able to actually spend time and share time and space with someone and then to have a skill 
that can provide service. And help, true right. help. Yeah, but what I also found, though, was that for me, I wanted to, one on, medicine is like, medicine is like, you know, I'm, I'm lousy at construction, but here's a metaphor for you. It's like building a house one brick at a time. And so every person is that brick, and you are, again, trying to, you're positioning that brick. This is a bad metaphor, but go with it. I'm ready. Uh, okay, good. I'm, just let me run with this. Public health is like putting up sheetrock. And so you are building a structure by creating this framework so that everybody can be healthy. And so rather than one person at a time, I'm trying, public health is trying to create healthy environments. And so for me, when I found, it was interesting, I was doing a fellowship in what's called integrative medicine, which is um, essentially learning about alternative care practices, so Chinese medicine and nutrition and uh, energy medicine and all this kind of, you know, foo-foo stuff at sure. med in medicine. I mean, we were like, what is this stuff? But the reality is that Western medicine is a very aggressive form of medicine. I mean, we either cut it out or we blast it sure. with drugs. And yet you look at, you know, cultures that have looked at health in a very different framework. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of merit to that. And so for us to think in a very sort of very hubristic way, if there's such a word, that we have all the answers by Western medicine, I think is truly an ignorant approach. So to be able to partner, and I truly say partner with an individual, because again, we, in medicine, we treat patients. But one of the things that I came to learn in my practice of integrative medicine was that you're partnering with somebody. It's a journey. And you've been given an opportunity to maybe assist somebody and or to guide that person on a journey. And as a physician, I mean, you're given, it's an incredible honor to be given that opportunity and to then further your toolbox with different tools, not just here's a pill, we need to take, do, take you to surgery. Oh, wait a minute. There's actually, there's things I can be doing for myself. I could meditate or maybe I could eat differently. That's kind of cool. So anyway, it was during uh, a fellowship in integrative medicine that I learned about public health, and all of a sudden the light went off. It's like, oh, this is totally cool. It's population approach to health. Yeah. And what part of the world were you in when you were going through, you know, this integrated medicine, you know, so you, study? Yeah. So University of Arizona. Okay. Uh, at that time, Andrew Weil. So Andrew Weil, back in the 80s and 90s, well-known author, physician, uh, some called him a guru of alternative medicine, and I was selected to be one of the second, I was the second class of fellows, which was totally cool. I mean, it was very a cool, honor, but it was interesting how I got, how I got there. I was in family practice and, you know, wow, I've just worked another shift and I'm like, you know, my days are really long and my nights are really short because I'm having to get up and do call and all this kind of stuff. And I'm flipping through my journals and I'm seeing this integrative medicine. What is this? Yeah. Who is this person? Yeah. But what was cool was that I had experienced some of the integrative medicine on my own in that I had, um, had a running injury 
uh, years and years ago. And after I ran, I, after I did this marathon, I came up lame. And it was like, you know, what should I do? And went the traditional route of physical therapy and orthopedics, and they got nothing, nothing. And I found a massage therapist. And Wes worked wonders, but then he goes, one day he goes, Bob, I'm, I'm, I'm studying to be, I'm studying acupuncture. Would you mind if I stick needles in you? <laughs> and like, like oh. thinking, okay, fine, stick needles in me. See <laughs> if it makes it. a difference. Go ahead. So I'm getting, he massages me, and then all of a sudden he sticks needles in me. And wow, I could run. And I mean, it made wow. no sense because if you look at the meridians in Eastern medicine and you, like you touch here and it affects someplace else in your body. And it's like, how does this make sense from the anatomy that I understand and have been taught? It doesn't. But something happens. Right. And you see an outcome. It's yeah. hard to look away, right? Yeah, exactly. So I experienced this. Yeah. And then all of a sudden to be brought into a, or given an opportunity of actually learning about it. Totally cool. So as I said, I was fortunate enough to be, you know, uh, chosen as one of the four second class of fellows and learned a lot. Um, and again, I, for me, that the value of that was learning how to work with individuals in a different way, that I had more tools. And again, I think that, as I shared earlier, it's a path, it's a journey. And when someone has a, an illness, who they journey with and how they experience that journey will affect that outcome. And, you know, they may not, they may want to get here and they may not know how they're going to get there, but at least you're able to assist them in that. And so for me, that was a real honor. So um, there I am studying integrative medicine, totally cool. And then I learn about public health and I say even cooler. You're like, all right, I'm in. This is great. And so I went and got my master's in public health at University of Arizona and then found myself up in Spokane. And I think, I think one of the things I would share with the listeners is that for me, the definition of public health, um, one that I present is that it came out from the Institute of Medicine back in 1988. Public health is what we as a society do collectively to assure the conditions in which people can be healthy. The framework. And when I provide that definition, I say, for me, there are three important elements of that. It's a collective effort. Okay, it's a collective approach. You know, we in public health are not solely responsible for the public's health. We are a contributor. And it's a collective effort. And it's a societal responsibility. You know, the reality is health is not a gift. Health is a responsibility that I think we in society need to provide people. Health is an asset. And we need to be able to provide the conditions for people to achieve that asset. And so it's the conditions. It's all the social context, physical context that allows people to have health. And so I rhetorically ask people, you know, you may not be a public health person, but do you care about the person you're sitting next to? Do you care about somebody else? Do you care about your neighbors? If you do, then I would argue you are probably a public health person. Yeah, you're, you are part of this. Yeah, and it's a collective effort. And so that's where, again, I think that the pandemic has certainly highlighted public health in both good and bad ways. And it'll be interesting to see as the pandemic sort of becomes endemic, whatever that means. I mean, again, people need to realize that endemic diseases still cause a lot of bad things. 
But as the pandemic winds down, what is public health going to look like in the future? And will it find itself stressed and or at times vilified when public health is called upon again to weigh in heavily for the next pandemic or whatever we find ourselves having to deal with? And I think that, you know, for us to say, oh, the pandemic only happens every 100 years. Silly, right? It's, yeah, it's, you know, with climate change and, you know, more and more viruses and things are changing and all that, we in public health certainly believe that we are going to see another significant epidemic, possibly pandemic, in, you know, the near future to find near. And I just hope that at the end of the day, we've learned our lessons and that Although, obviously, you know, those of us in public health needed to learn a lot of lessons as well. I mean, this was a novel virus. We didn't know anything about it. Yeah, all We've new. Learned, and we made mistakes. You know, yeah, how own, human. Own up, yeah, own, <laughs> own up to it. We made mistakes. But at the end of the day, I think we save lives. And uh, I not, not think, I know we save lives. And so I hope that people recognize that and that when the next pandemic comes, it's looked upon or public health professionals are looked upon as just that health professionals for the public that are there to do good work and not be vilified for doing the work that they've done. Well, and just, I appreciate that. And I think anyone who wants to be in support of public health has to understand it's like we're humans. We are like working hard we're using science to try to like Solve problems, and some of them are quite complex. Yeah. Um, but it's not just uh, you know viruses and things of that nature either. It's like we're watching you know really inexpensive you know drugs hit our streets right now, like the fentanyl crisis. I mean, in my mind, that is a public health crisis, right? Yeah, it's yeah. affecting many people and communities, and it might not just be you know the individual down the street and their family, but it's their friends. It's it's just affecting everybody. Yeah, no, you're right on, right on, Steve. I mean, again, it's interesting for me, just the mm. progression back in 2017, 2018, when fentanyl was just starting to make itself present in our community, people were avoiding it. You know, we were talking about what are called fentanyl test strips. So you could test the drug that you were using to see if it had fentanyl in it. And now fentanyl test strips, they can still be utilized, but the reality is that fentanyl is everywhere. Right. And back then trying to avoid fentanyl now trying to find fentanyl and it's dirt cheap you know the market got flooded a year plus ago as we've heard and so now it's just everywhere and you know not only is it in the drugs that you don't think have fentanyl but it's in the drugs that you know are fentanyl and people are using it but i think you know we t we use the term behavioral health to look at both substance usage and mental health issues. Okay. That's sort of an umbrella phrase. And I think people mm. need, you know, we have had this historically, this dichotomy between the mind and the body and mental health and physical health. Like we separated it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it goes way back, you know, and again, I won't bore you with that history, but there has been this duality, this dichotomy between, okay, you've got a physical health condition. And you're going to go to a doctor, and you know what? 
we define people. I unfortunately I know people who define themselves by their medical conditions. Sure. You know, I've got heart disease. I'm a diabetic. Nobody t- talks about themselves being a depressive, or I'm anxious, or I've got schizophrenia. You know, and we in our communities tend to like keep these people. At a distance. Yeah, it starts now, to get obviously, scary. Now, obviously, things like the Prozac generation, I mean, I remember when Prozac first came out, and it's like, all of a sudden, everybody wants Prozac. And I remember being in a, in a cafe, and I had three people across the aisle talking about the different doses of Prozac they were taking. And they were, like, really excited about it. I'm, like, thinking, what does this say about our society when people are excited about taking an antidepressant? So we well because it fixes things we know well, right it may it, it may it may <laughs> I say that facetiously uh, yeah right it may I mean yeah. don't get me wrong I mean it may I mean there have been certainly many people who have found their lives bettered by taking the right medication and I think that's right on sure where I'm going with this is that we have as a society a challenge with individuals who have mental health issues. They're treated differently. We see it every day in our work at Skillskin, yeah, right. you know, helping people with disabilities. Yeah, they're treated Love. differently. And as a result, they don't always get the same compassion that is given someone with a physical illness. And so, again, I think right now, substance usage, yeah, it's out there. I mean, you're reading about it, 104,000 plus deaths attributed to overdoses last year, give or take, and locally as well as statewide, an issue. But look at the mental health issues that existed prior to the pandemic, and the pandemic has made worse. Yeah, definitely exasperated. And so we are going to have individuals who are going to have mental health issues exacerbated by the pandemic that are going to be ongoing. And we know locally as well as nationally, we do not have enough mental health professionals to address the need. What do we do? And, you know, many people will find themselves self-medicating. People take drugs because they like the way it makes them feel. They don't like the way they feel. Right. So I'll take a drug. You know, what are the numbers? Something like, I want to say, you know, 10%, maybe more of people who use methamphetamine are using it to self-medicate. And opioids are no different. And because they're so addictive, well, you take it because you, I don't like the way I feel. And, you know, I, I, you know, I saw a woman uh, doing street medicine a couple of days ago, and um, they, she was hospitalized. And the doctors, because she was using fentanyl, gave her methadone as a pain medication in the hospital. But then she's discharged. Yeah. And where do you get methadone? You have to go to either the methadone program at the health department, or if you have insurance, there's another methadone program. But there's a long queue to get into the methadone program. And so what's she going to do? She's going to end up using again. Absolutely. And so it's, we find ourselves in a really tough place. But getting back to your question, I mean, this is all public health, you know, and climate change. 
Well, well, can I circle back a little bit on this idea of, you know, the mental health and maybe employers' responsibilities. I think about, you know, in our work, we're, we're a special organization. You know, we exist to help people with disabilities. We employ a lot of people with disabilities. And sometimes mental health issues come up. Well, weekly. It comes up all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and we're amateurs, to be honest. We've had a lot of experience. But we're not trained professionals, and we help people get through it. Just having a conversation about that today. Um, what what can businesses do, you know, to to help? Do we have do they have a responsibility to like help their employees, and how? Like, what kind of resources can we well, help give people? Well, I mean, again, you know, does your company provide health insurance? Basic, yeah. right? Just yeah. that level. Yeah. I mean, is there mental health coverage in that health insurance package? You know, you said weekly, daily. I would say that there's probably mental health issues on an hour-by-hour hour moment in any workspace. You know, the reality is we're all, we all deal with it. We all deal with it in different ways, and some of us deal with it better than others. And then when you have complicating factors, I mean, let's say you have a basic, maybe, let's say that you maybe have an underlying mental health issue that is then made worse by either your environment work environment, space where you live, you know, stressors. Mm -hmm. We talk about adverse childhood experiences and their impact on people's physical and mental health. You know, so employers need to be able to, A, provide resources, but also the awareness. And as I was sharing before with you, Steve, I mean, there's a stigma associated with having a mental health issue. We need to break down that stigma. You know, if I have anxiety, if I have depression, if I have schizophrenia, I'm still a human being. Absolutely. You know, and I may also have a medical condition or I have a medical condition that's exacerbating my mental health issues. But again, at the end of the day, we're all human beings and we have to treat people as if we would want to be treated by ourselves. And so I think in my mind, if I look at what makes a good employer it's one and again i just use that term generically sure. it's, it's one that provides an opportunity for people to be themselves irrespective of some of the issues that they have and provide a safe space and don't exacerbate the situation by making it a bad workspace and be open and be caring i remember uh a previous employer, I remember hearing a side conversation, someone like this maybe a decade ago talking about needed a mental health day and they just rake that person over the coals in the background. I was like, Oh, that's the culture of the company. Yeah. They're not valuing that. And I see that changing over time. Yeah. Then that, that's positive, right? It is. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. Yesterday, for example, at department of health where I work now, as I mentioned to you, there was a workshop and there were probably about, 200 plus people attending it. And it was about how you deal with the mental health issues of the, what has the pandemic done to you? What is the pandemic and its response still doing to you? We look at that kind of mental health response and how are you coping? What are your coping mechanisms? What are your strategies? What are we able to provide as an organization for you? to make you, to allow you to feel 
as if you have some control, as if you are able to sort of deal with some of the stressors. So again, I think that's, I would argue, part and parcel to a good workspace and having people who care. Right. I mean, the employer, but also the colleagues. You know, I mean, you want people who are checking, are, are you okay? Are you okay? I mean, honestly, I mean, let's have a relationship. You want to be able to have those safe conversations. You want a safe space. You want to be yourself. And, you know, again, a space where I have to put on a facade. I can't let people know that in t- inside I am being torn apart. I am an emotional wreck. Oh, but if I express myself at work, oh, what are they going to think about me? And what's my boss going to think about me? That's not a space you want to be. The reality no, is, however, don't. the reality is, however, that many people find themselves in those spaces because they don't have a choice. You know, they, you know, they're there to they're making ends meet and they don't have that safe space. They've got to be there to put food on the table. And so that's, again, I think one of the challenges we have. And that's why I go back to my definition of public health. It's a societal responsibility for us to create and nurture environments that allow people to have their health. And that's the broad space, that's the intimate workspace. Yeah, it's everybody's responsibility, including yeah. employers, to yep. be a part of that conversation. So completely, yeah. Well, I, I think about my own self, and especially that authenticity piece, that's something we talk about at work a lot. And I know for me, like, as I became more authentic at work, my level of happiness went up too. And I was surprised. I didn't know. I was a salesperson forever in the medical space. Wait, okay. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. every piece of plastic, ventilators, <laughs> everything, I have sold that. Um, but when I came, yeah, to Skillskin, I just, I started seeing a happy workforce and I'm like, well, what's happening That's here? Weird. I saw a lot of authentic people. And so I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was pretty weird. So I'm like, eh, we'll see what happens. But as the more authentic I became, the happier I became. And so that really resonates with me. Uh, Think about if we can spread that or, you know, if there's some science behind that, I'd be really interested. But it's something that, you know, I value uh, at our workplace. And hopefully, you know, our listeners, you know, at your workplace, you can take a leap. Try to be as authentic as you can to see what happens. Yeah. Maybe we can create those spaces in our yeah. workplaces. You know, Shakespeare said, to thine own self be true. And, you know, that's something that's sort of a, a something that I've tried to live by. I mean, I, I need to be true to myself. And when you're true to yourself and you're authentic and you're not ashamed or you're not um, trying to put on a facade, you are who you are, then it's so much easier than, oh, I've got to, I've, I've got to look this way. I've got to act this way. And... <laughs> Some of us have, have a lot of warts and a lot of, you know, um, we're not always pretty. But at the end of the day, we are who we are. Yes. And, and have value. And exactly, yeah. And again, I think that any workspace that truly values the person for who they are, not who they want them to be and or who the person feels they need to be, then that's a workspace that you're going to have authenticity. And to be able to nurture that authenticity and to share that. You know, that's an honor. It's a world I want to be a part of. Yeah. Well, Bob, as our, our time kind of wraps here, I'm wondering, do you have any parting thoughts for our listeners today? Yeah, what do I say? Um, 
you know, I think I go back to what I started to, you know, started off our conversations with Steve. Um, do you care about the other people in your world? If you do, then you're a public health person and, you know, care about the people that you work with on a daily basis, the people that you interact with. Your point about authenticity, be yourself, be there to support others. You know, we're all in this, we're all in this together. And, you know, it's this individual approach that makes it very, very challenging. But when we collectively work together, we're going to have a better outcome. Love it. Appreciate that. Thank you for joining us today. Just what a wonderful conversation. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. 